If you are an injured skier hoping to get back to the ski hill as fast as possible, understanding how to properly fuel your body is imperative to maximizing your recovery. On today's episode, Emily, a registered dietitian that specializes in working with injured athletes, joins us to talk about fueling during the rehab process. She has dietetic experience ranging from helping recreational adults to professional baseball players who have played for the Texas Rangers, and I'm super thankful for all the knowledge she shares. Whether you want to know what foods to eat, how much water to drink, if you should be supplementing, or if you're fearful of gaining or losing weight during the rehab process, she speaks to all of these topics and many more. I hope you enjoy this one. Let's welcome her to the show. Emily, welcome to the Legacy Podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today um, just to share your knowledge about everything nutrition and recovery. And um, I know a lot of the people in the circle are interested in just like recovering faster so they can get back to the ski hill faster. So I'm excited that you're going to share some of that knowledge to help with them today. But yeah, Emily, I'll just give you a chance to kind of introduce yourself to the listeners. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Emily Barnhart. I am a sports dietitian and I focus specifically on injured athletes. I just think that, or yeah, I think that you guys kind of deserve a little extra TLC. Um, and I really like being able to give that. Um, yeah, so here I am. I run my practice, the injury RD. Awesome. That is so good. So Emily, I just want to know, kind of some background about you. How did you get into like nutrition and then why specifically did you want to focus on the injured athlete? You have a story on your own. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a random story and I'll try to take you through it as painlessly as possible. Uh, so originally I wanted to be a strength coach and then I did a football internship and as a female in football in the early two thousands, I was like, Oh, I am not the right girl to break into this. And I went to grad school, thought I wanted to do hormone research, and then realized that I really wanted to work with people instead of sitting behind a desk. So while I was doing research at, don't hate me for saying this, at the Ohio State, um, <laughs> uh, while I was doing research, I got the opportunity to discover Ohio State's sports nutrition program. And growing up as a gymnast, I was like, holy, can I swear on here? Holy shit. I yeah. wish... Yeah, I wish I had had this as an athlete. I think my experience would have been vastly different if I had had nutrition support and some some different messaging around nutrition. So I swerved a little bit, became a sports dietitian, uh, worked in college for a little bit, and then took a job in uh, Major League Baseball. And while I was in baseball, I got to work pretty closely with our Tommy John pitchers. So it's basically the ACL of your elbow, and it is a very long rehab and uh, if you know anything about baseball, you are at work 24 seven. So I was literally eating three meals a day with these players. And, you know, we can only talk about nutrition so, so much. So most of the time we were just talking about their life and kind of shooting the shit a little bit. And, you know, I was learning a lot about the emotional side of what's going on here and how the emotional side impacts their nutrition choices during their rehab. And I literally had, you know, these grown men crying on my shoulders sometimes. And I just was like, we, nutrition needs a, a bigger seat at this rehab table. And it's so much more than, you know, your macros and, and figuring out what nutrients you need and stuff like that. We need to address the stress and, and the emotional eating and things like that, that, that are going on. Um, so I kind of took that and ran with it and that's how that practice started. So cool. I think just like having a background in sports and kind of being able to fall into that, but really having a passion for it is uh, so cool to transform that. 
Now, for the people that don't know, like what a registered dietitian is, like, what's the difference between a registered dietitian between someone that is a nutritionist or a foodie? Ooh, um, uh, the main difference is I spent a lot longer in school. Uh, so to be a registered dietitian, you have to have a master's degree. We go through a matching program similar to doctors, uh, where you have to match into a clinical program and then I have to take a national board exam. And, and the main difference really is that I am trained in nutritional counseling. So kind of like I was talking to those athletes at lunch about, you know, their relationship with food and and their nutrition decision-making, I have some skills and some under not some, I have a lot of skills and understanding of how to navigate, navigate those conversations. And, you know, a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of very knowledgeable nutritionists and, and whatever out there. Um, but it's all based on, you know, meal plans and, and menus and things like that. And what I can do that's different is truly help you figure out what's underlying and what some of those limiting beliefs are and how, we genuinely make nutrition feel easier. Yeah. So if someone is kind of in that ballpark where they're like, you know, I feel like I have a decent handle on nutrition, but maybe they're looking to level up their game or they just don't know, like if they need more help, when would it be wise to seek counsel from a registered dietitian? Hmm. I would say if your nutrition is stressing you out in any way, or you're just kind of like frantically trying to find answers on Google or, or whatever, uh, it might be nice to, to seek someone out. Or if you have a major change or a new diagnosis going on in your life, right? An ACL surgery is a major change in your lifestyle. So you might be wondering, do I need to make a major change in my nutrition? Um, you know, certain medical diagnoses are, are good times to see a dietitian. I'm very biased. I think everybody should see a dietitian like they should see a dentist, right? Kind of like you probably think everybody should see a physical therapist like they should see a dentist. Um, but yes, there's plenty of good, good times to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think like you're talking holistic health in general, and it's like, you know, exercise is good for you, you know, eating healthy is good for you. But like, how do you optimize that to make it like realistic in your life? And I think having someone that has worked with a lot of people, and it's not just like throwing an unrealistic plan at you, whether it's for exercise or nutrition is really going to help you get to your goals. Now, I know a lot of the people listening may be injured or trying to get back to the ski hill from injury. um, And that's what I really wanted to bring Emily on and have her talk about today. So Um, maybe one of the first questions I was curious about is when we're preparing to go into surgery, is there anything we can do, for example, to like pregame the surgery or preload our bodies to maximize our recovery post-op? Yeah, Greg, I love one that you asked this question because I don't get it a lot. And two, how you phrased it as pregame, because that's kind of how I want you to think about it. So if you know anything about pregame fuel or pre-workout fuel, the focus is carbs and it's the same for your surgery, which might feel a little counterintuitive. The focus is carbs. And there's actually a lot of um, thought around there that we, we potentially should be carb loading for a surgery. And what happens is when our muscles and our liver are fully saturated with that carb and that energy level, when we do go into surgery and, you know, in surgery and after surgery, your body gets this massive signal to your muscles that they should break down. You know, we've all seen those images of one quad versus the other quad and one looks like a chicken leg and the other is, you know, a fully developed adult quad, right? So having a fully loaded, you know, 
carb system heading into surgery can diminish that signal. So heading into surgery, maybe the night before, I want half your plate to be carbs. And then if you could have, you know, most people are kind of limited to a clear diet, but Gatorade, the real thing with sugar in it has some carbs. So that'd be a really great thing to have prior to your surgery. And then if possible, as soon as you can after surgery, get some form of carbon. Got it. Yeah. So whether that's a quick sugar or some form of like a slow breakdown type of carbohydrate, I think that's really, really helpful news. Um, okay. And then what about like when you come out of surgery? I know sometimes like with the medications we're on, we're not um, like so keen on eating. Um, is there a certain number of like uh, nutrients that you recommend getting based on the individual's composition? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, and you hit the nail on the head there, whether it's pain medication or just pain in general or not wanting to move, the eating part of this can be a challenge. So I would encourage you that anything is better than nothing. Um, so maybe lean into your cravings if you need to a little bit. Um, but in general, the number one thing after a surgery is I need you to balance out your nutrients throughout the day. So don't go too long without skipping meals. We need to spread that protein throughout the day. Again, it's all about sending that signal to your muscle that we don't want it to waste away. So I need you to have some form of breakfast, lunch, dinner, probably some snacks in between. I really don't want you to go more than four hours, obviously, except for when you're sleeping, but I really don't want you to go more than four hours without eating. And it doesn't have to be super complicated. It can be a turkey sandwich. It can be a Greek yogurt. It can be cereal. It can be, you know, whatever that means, but spreading out your protein throughout the day, including carbs throughout the day, having a focus on fruits and veggies can be really helpful. Um, but just getting something in is kind of all I ask for sometimes. Yeah. And then uh, with the medication or when people have a suppressed appetite, do you have any strategies for kind of how to entice yourself to eat? Um, or are there any um, things that like you would recommend? Like, I know force feeding yourself isn't always like the most <laughs> fun, but like if it's necessary and it's going to help you recover, it's something that, you know, one should take into consideration. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't have to be anything major. A couple bites can be better than nothing. And typically if you're feeling nauseous or just not hungry at all, keeping things simple, keeping things room temperature, keeping things kind of mild. So staying away from like hot, spicy, stinky kind of foods is usually helpful. So like some crackers, some cheese and crackers, things like that. And then again, just really leaning into those cravings and remembering that Food can be enjoyable sometimes. Like, I don't know what it is, but so many people lean into goldfish after surgery because it's just kind of like a childhood thing, I think. So goldfish and bagel bites or goldfish and chicken nuggets, whatever it is, um, lean into what sounds good, try a couple bites and, you know, keep going with it and that hunger will come back. Gotcha. Awesome. Now, in, in regards to the timing of eating, is there a best time to eat? Obviously, we most people eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, but um, I know you were talking about spacing that out. Can you speak in regards to the timing of eating? Yeah, again, it's most important that we space it out. So research tells us when it comes to signaling muscle growth, roughly 20 to 30 grams of protein every three to four hours is most important. Um, and then obviously timing can kind of come into play when you are, you know, back to workouts or back on the mountains and things like that. But in general, I just need you to think of your day like a seesaw and we don't want all of your calories and protein to be at dinner. We don't want all of them to be in the morning. We really just want a balanced 
seesaw throughout the day? It's not a sexy answer, but it is unfortunately the best answer. Sure, sure. I think there's a lot of research that is done around like the specific training session because like a lot of bodybuilders will like do research on that. Now, is there a difference between fueling for like say a bodybuilding session versus fueling for like say a rehab session when you're going to PT? Yeah, I mean, our fuel can always support our PT goals, right? So if we're a bodybuilding session, our goal is to build muscle. Nine times out of 10, our PT session, our goal is to build muscle, right? So going into that session with an easy to digest carb source is helpful because we can have that energy, that quick digesting energy, avoiding things like high in fat and things high in fiber before your session, because those will sit in your stomach and be a little bit slower to digest and maybe slow you down a little bit. And then afterwards, we want to get that carbon protein in. And I'm sure you have heard of, you know, the golden window. It's kind of that 45 minutes after your workout. It's kind of been debunked, especially when it comes to protein. So after a workout, usually I will tell athletes, I need you to get protein and carbs in. Protein doesn't necessarily have to fall within that 45 minute post-workout window, but to hit our total daily protein goal, usually we need to hit that window, right? Carbs, however, that 45 minutes after your workout, you do have increased absorption into your muscle and carbs. So if our focus is really, you know, re-energizing and recovering for PT the next day or whatever is coming in 24 hours, then we do want to get some carbs in after your workout. Gotcha. So you talked about a little bit, the ratios of um, protein, fat, and carbs. Is there recommended uh, number or ratios that you have for that, that someone is in that recovery process? Mm, For a post-workout window or for kind of total macros? Uh, I would just say maybe total macros on like a day. Okay. Yeah. So let's divide your phase of rehab into kind of two different sections, right? We have kind of your post-op and and healing section where you're not really clear to do much yet. And then usually we transition more into that rebuild and we're building muscle and, and things like that. And there's two different sets of macro goals. So when it comes to post-op or, you know, those few months after surgery, obviously that goal is going to include a lot of protein. For most people, the goal is your body weight and protein. So 2.2 grams per kilogram of protein. For some of you, that might feel like a lot. So if you could hit at least 1.5 grams per kilogram, I would say you're in a pretty good boat. Then when it comes to carbs, I will say the minimum that I would want you to hit is at least three grams per kilogram. Okay. You do need carbs to recover. I like to use this analogy a lot that if protein is kind of the building blocks of, you know, your ACL or whatever you're repairing, carbs are the the workers and we need workers to be able to build that house. So at least three grams per kilogram, sometimes it's up to six ish. Um, Usually if we're doing macros correctly, that's 40 to 50%. And then when it comes to fat, I usually figure out the other two first and just kind of double check some standards on fat. So minimum required fat is going to be 0.45 grams per kilogram. So I need you to at least hit that. Um, and if you're figuring out your macros and those other two, two goals are getting hit, your, your protein and your carbs and your fat is falling below that, then our, our total calories are probably too low. Okay. So that's kind of the first couple months. Then things shift when we get more movement, your protein goals are actually going to go down. So they're going to be kind of that 1.5 to 1.8 
micrograms per kilogram range and your carb goals are going to go up. So really dependent on kind of who you are and how much movement is going on. But I would say it's going to be at least four grams per kilogram up to eight or nine if we're, if we're really active. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now say we're not specifically like using a scale to measure. I know this is kind of just ballpark figures, but if you're using kind of like a plate to estimate um, those numbers that you're talking about, can you give like a visual maybe representation of yeah. what that would look like early on versus later? Yeah, I actually use a method. I don't require any of my athletes to count or calculate or, you know, definitely not measure if they don't want to. Um, I use a performance plate method. And typically for most people, our, our pro, excuse me, our protein portion is going to be about the size of your entire hand. So that's six to eight ounces if we're including our fingers for most people. And then our carb portion is going to be one to two this of carbs. So let's say I'm scooping rice or pasta or whatever. It's going to be, you know, kind of a ball of two fists together. Um, and then of course we want some veggies on the plate. And again, typically if we're kind of eating a variety and things like that, your fat is going to fall in the right place. Gotcha. That's really helpful actually. Yeah. What about the quality of protein, carbs, and fat? Does that make a difference or is it more just mm. about getting it in? Mm. I mean, it is about getting it in. Uh, protein is is interesting. So specifically, again, if we are looking at signaling muscle protein synthesis, we don't want it to waste away. We want it to grow, yada, yada, yada. Most people's goal, right? There is a amino acid called leucine that is basically the key to, to signal that. And leucine is a branched chain amino acid that is found in meat and dairy products. It's found in some other plant-based products like um, lentils and, and things like that. Um, but typically we want three to five grams of leucine to turn that signal on. And we want that at each meal or, you know, each kind of protein session, uh, and 20 to 30 grams of an, of an animal based protein will typically give that to you. However, if you are plant-based, there's a lot of, you know, great ways to kind of get around that. I totally support people that want to be plant-based. Uh, we just have to pay attention to our leucine a little bit more and, and sometimes kind of supplement with some stuff. Gotcha. Cool. Um, what about like during the initial rehab process, there's obviously a lot of tissue inflammation. Now, I think anything that you can do to reduce inflammation would be helpful. Um, the infl inflammatory process obviously brings a lot of healing factors into that. So I just wanted to ask your thoughts on eating an anti-inflammatory diet versus kind of just eating a standard diet. And if there's any thoughts you have on that. Yeah. Again, I want to focus on maybe what we can add instead of what to take out. And a, a good rule of thumb that comes up a lot is I want you to try to get five anti-inflammatory foods in per day. And what I mean by that is a fruit or a vegetable or an anti-inflammatory fat, like um, an omega-3 supplement or fish or tuna um, olive oil, things like that. Okay. So trying to spread those throughout your day can be really helpful. Gotcha. And I know you said there's like things to that. We try not to focus on the things to avoid, but are there any specific like food categories that you would recommend not eating or trying to avoid if possible? Nope. I, I genuinely believe this from the bottom of my heart Anything that you want to include can be part of a performance or rehab 
focused diet. I don't want you to think about what you want to cut out. I want you to try to think about what you need to add. And, you know, that performance plate method that I was talking about, like, let's say, you know, we can talk about stereotypically, quote unquote, I don't like to use the word bad food, but like, uh, not necessarily full of nutrients, right? A stereotypical food might be like Doritos, right? Well, if our goal is to build out a performance plate at every meal and on that performance plate, we want a protein and a carb and a color, so a fruit or a vegetable, and we're really craving Doritos, Doritos can cover the carb portion of that meal. And then we just need to add a protein and we need to add a fruit or vegetable. And that is a really wonderful way to find balance of including the foods that you like um, instead of maybe like sitting in front of the TV and suddenly the entire family size bag of Doritos is gone and then you're, you know, wrecked with guilt and stress, which is not super helpful to your rehab. Yeah, so is um, I just want to try and clarify and make sure I'm hearing this correctly. So essentially, sure. the body can't necessarily differentiate if a carb is from a Dorito or if it's from rice. The main important thing is making sure that our ratios are set up. So making sure we're eating that uh, portion of Doritos that's within the portion of um, carbs from the Doritos to protein and fat. Likewise, we would want to eat the same portion of like rice to protein and fat. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes and no. I mean, obviously the body can differentiate if the carb that you're sending down to your gut has fiber or it has, you know, more whole grains and magnesium and things like that, that are super important. Right. But I'm zooming out and looking at this mo more holistically of, you know, what's realistic for people to incorporate and incorporate easy and not, you know, kind of my number one goal is, is for you not to feel stressed or miserable about your nutrition, especially in rehab, you're kind of already stressed and miserable. Um, so, you know, I think being able to include those pieces of what people really like and what people crave is a, a good way to kind of meet people where they're at um, and make this feel not super intimidating sometimes. That's really helpful. I think making things feel realistic is like very helpful. And when you work with like a trainer, that's like, okay, we're going to do this five days a week and you're working five days a week and your schedule doesn't allow it, then it can be really stressful to try and fit that out in. And the same thing I think applies for eating. So that's a very helpful tip. Now yeah, I know like, you're mentioning. Imagine... Sorry, okay, go sorry. I'm just going to like further that a little bit. Right. So imagine you go to a trainer and they're like, I need you to do this five days a week, no matter what. A lot of people will hear that and they'll just, they won't do anything. And instead of hitting five days a week, they'll hit zero. But if, you know, we can kind of meet them and say, well, two days a week is better than zero. That's how I approach food as well, right? Like hitting some things is better than kind of what I call like fuck it mode and not worrying about anything. Absolutely. I like that. I like that approach a lot. <laughs> okay, good. Um, okay. So you mentioned some things about supplementation. And um, I was just curious if you had to recommend specific supplements to maximize recovery, are there certain things that you look at that someone should consider during that recovery process? Mm, yes. Supplements are, are super individual, but I will say, you know, I know people are going to want an answer to this one. So I will say a couple that I feel pretty confident to kind of blanket recommend can be always helpful would be, you know, a whey protein is always is nice to be able to kind of hit your protein goals. Creatine can be a really great one. So just your normal five gram dose of creatine every day can help with your muscle goals and an omega three as kind of an anti-inflammatory. Most of us are not eating enough fish and, and things like that. And there's really 
no downside to an omega-3. There's there's a lot of really great research out there on that. So those three, I'd feel pretty, pretty gosh darn confident to, to recommend. And then some of the other ones that come up a lot would be something like a tart cherry juice. Um, so that's just a nice antioxidant, comes in juice form. Um, it's a natural form of melatonin. So, you know, four to eight ounces, about an hour before bed. Um, anecdotally, a lot of athletes have told me that they really like that. They feel less sore when they include it. Um, and then <laughs> anecdotally, a lot of them have told me about some crazy dreams that happen. <laughs> so just maybe beware of that if you try that one. Um, and then, you know, sometimes things like, you know, curcumin or turmeric and, and things like that, but don't, don't go crazy on the supplements, you know? Yeah. You know, I've heard some, um, myths that maybe the source in which the supplement comes from matters. Does it really mm -hmm. matter like what you're buying and like the type of supplement and how it's extracted, or is it more important that you're just kind of getting that in you? Ooh, Ooh, there's so many different ways that I could answer this question. Um, I mean, the form of the supplement can be very important for certain supplements. So like there are different forms of magnesium uh, in supplement form. Well, one of them is how in the hospital we treat constipation, right? So if we are maybe taking the wrong form, then we're going to end up with, with diarrhea. Okay. So, and then, you know, different forms of iron and things like that can be really important, but I think bigger picture when it comes to supplementation. And if you have ever been around college athletics or, you know, Olympic athletics, anything where people are being drug tested, it is super important that we have some idea of what is inside our supplements. And the supplement industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's not regulated by anyone. There's nothing that is saying that what the label says is in the supplement has to actually be in the supplement. And you would be shocked at some of the stats. So there's been some research that goes in and, and looks at certain supplements in the US. And uh, I think it was protein powder specifically for this study I'm thinking of. 20% of them contained some form of anabolic steroid that wasn't on the label, right? So we don't want that. And then my, my favorite example of this is there was a I think it was an herbal supplement, but it was a pretty common brand. And, uh, oh, I wish I could remember what the ingredient was, but let's just say it was turmeric, right? And when they actually went in and tested what was in that supplement, there was zero turmeric in it and it was 100% garlic powder, okay? So something that we can do to make sure that, you know, we feel more comfortable that what we're buying is actually, you know, safe. It's including the ingredients in the amounts that it says, and it doesn't have any extra stuff added is find third-party tested supplements. So there's two brands that are pretty easy to find in the U.S. or two kind of third-party testing companies. One is called NSF for sport. It's a blue circle that you'll see on, on labels. They also have a website. You can kind of type in your supplements and see if, if they're tested. Uh, that's nsfsport.com. And the other one is a green check mark called informed choice. And those are the only ones that are actually going in and testing to make sure that, you know, what we want in there is actually in there. A lot of supplements will say, you know, they're tested or, you know, guaranteed, but they, that's just kind of marketing and they're telling you what you, what you want to hear. Um, so just, you know, beware of that. The supplement industry is the wild, wild west, basically.
That's super helpful because, uh, you know, oftentimes I think people just go to maybe the drugstore or the supplement section and see like, oh, this one is more expensive. It must be the one that has the good ingredients. But unless it has that NSF, um, like a uh, check mark or the green check mark, like you really yeah. don't know. So that's very yeah. interesting. And I didn't know that. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, GNC is is usually not your friend. Hopefully none of them none of them are listening and going to come after me for saying that, but <laughs> don't, GNC don't does not yourself. sponsor this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if they ever want to, you can just erase this episode, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one thing that I've actually heard from a few people is during the rehab process, especially for a lot of these endurance athletes who were very active, they have uh, like a fear of kind of eating a lot or eating more or eating like what they used to, especially when they're not getting the same amount of exercise to burn that off. Now, obviously, like fueling the body is very important for rehab, but do you have a way that you like to explain things to that, that athlete so that way they make sure that they're fueling their bodies for recovery? Mm, oh, this is probably why I am in business. Uh, it is the number one question that I get. And, you know, I want to validate those are those concerns. That's, that's totally normal to have. There's kind of two different approaches um, that we can have for this conversation. One is very logical. And I can say, you know, surgery alone can increase your resting metabolic rate or, you know, your metabolism in layman's terms up to 20%, right? And, you know, Usually for most people, about 70% of their calorie needs are coming from, uh, you know, fueling their brain and fueling their immune system and fueling their heart and their, their digestion and things like that. It's not coming from energy and, and, you know, crutching around uses significantly more energy than just walking around. Right. And now we have this whole new compartment of energy needs called, you know, fueling your rehab and, and rebuilding an actual body part basically. Right. And that requires a lot of energy, even though it feels like you're, you know, maybe becoming one with your couch and you're not, you're not, you're not moving much. Right. So when we do the math, most people, unless, you know, you're a crazy, you know, distance person or, or you're, you're really doing a lot. Most people, their energy needs don't change that much from when they're active to when they're rehabbing. And a lot of it really kind of balances out. So I would encourage you to eat similarly to how you ate before. And a good kind of check on that is if you take your body weight and divide it by 2.2, that's how you got your body weight in kilograms, and then multiply that by 30 to 35, and that will give you a calorie range. And nine times out of 10, when I do all my fancy math and I, you know, have longer conversations with people, people fall within that range. So if you do that math and you are drastically under it or drastically over it, I just want you to maybe have a little bit of a, oh shit moment that maybe we need to make some changes. So that's kind of the logical side of that. And then <laughs> kind of the more important and, and harder conversation to have is, is the emotional side of that. So I would encourage you to just ask yourself, why is it so scary to gain weight? Or for some people, it's it's scary to lose weight. There's a lot of athletes that have worked really hard to, you know, build muscle and hit a certain weight. And now they're really nervous that all of that hard work is going to go away. So why is it so scary that your body might change or that we don't really know what's coming? And, you know, when you answer that, ask, ask why again, like, what does that come from? And keep going down that why 
spiral just to learn a little bit more about yourself. That's really good advice, honestly, because I had no clue how to like approach that, but now I have some tools. So <laughs> when people ask me that, I can be like, oh, this is what Emily says. <laughs> yeah, just keep asking them why. And then, you know, as a practitioner, I can say sometimes you might get into some some deep conversation that, you know, neither of us are, are therapists that are like trained to heal. So I just very non-judgmentally will continue to ask why. And if it starts to get in territory that I am not the right person to handle, I just go, that's a really interesting conclusion. And I think maybe you should talk to, you know, your therapist or, or you know, do you have someone to talk to you about this? Cause that that's tough and that's really tough to handle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so shifting back to, I guess, fueling, I know a lot of Americans with our busy schedules, like don't have any time to eat. And I've even had coworkers that used to skip lunch altogether. Are there any like favorite snacks or favorite foods that you recommend to people that that way they can get their macros in really quickly and in an efficient way? Yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of of easy on the go things like you can always grab a sandwich, you can always grab a bar, you can grab a shake, you can make a smoothie. Um, uh, the smoothie conversation is one that I have with physical therapists a lot because you know you guys are on your feet all day long. And you're like, I don't get a lunch break. I don't have time to eat. I'm like, do you carry a water bottle around? Can we replace that water bottle with smooth with a smoothie so that you're getting something throughout the day? Um, but again, you know, it doesn't have to be super fancy and complicated and you don't need to spend four hours every Sunday prepping some things. Uh, we can talk about how to build a performance plate at McDonald's if you want to, right? Uh, just do, do what you can and, and, uh, emergency snacks are your friends. So next time you go to the grocery store, pick up, you know, some RX bars or some cliff bars or whatever your favorite bar is, put them in your backpack, put them in your car glove compartment, as long as they're not coated in chocolate, because they will melt, um, or, or put them, you know, in your desk at work so that when you have those crazy busy days, you still have a way to fuel without really having to put much thought or effort into it. Uh, that makes sense. Now, what about like for the backcountry athlete or someone that is looking to maximize weight to, I guess, energy ratio? Are there specific things that like would be like really high in nutrients and high in energy that they that you may recommend they pack into their backpacks that aren't significantly heavy? Yeah, this is this is a great question. Um, you know, when we're fueling for backcountry it's, it's tough, right? Cause we want to avoid those high fiber, high fat things, right? Cause we don't want things sitting in our stomach and digesting slowly when we're moving, but, uh, things that are higher in fats, you know, like nut butters and things like that, uh, are usually more bang for your buck when it comes to calories. So I would encourage you to kind of experiment with that a little bit. Um, one, if you're okay with it being a little bit squished, uh, a peanut butter sandwich on white bread is kind of like a go-to or like an uncrustable, um, Scratch Labs has some really cool backcountry things. Again, you know, bars and chews and gels and and uh, the fluids that you're taking with you. Don't be scared to to have calories in in your fluids as well. Awesome. Now, I want to kind of flip the script and talk not necessarily about food, but hydration, because I feel like hydration is another thing that's very important for recovery. And in high school, you always see like those. Uh, people walking around with gallons of water a day. And I really want to know, is that an urban myth or is it really important to like drink that much water a day if you're training and if you're recovering? 
Yeah. You know, so again, this is sports nutrition. So of course I have a calculation for you because, you know, everybody is different and I can't just blanket, look at people of all different shapes and sizes and say that a gallon is right for you. Uh, for most of you, it will be, uh, but take, uh, again, take your body weight in pounds. We don't have to convert it to kilograms this time. And half of that should be your goal in ounces baseline. Uh, so before, you know, you're doing your workouts and stuff like that, let's say, let's say you're 200 pounds, then our goal is baseline hundred ounces of water per day. If you're up at altitude, that increases. Um, that's why you need to drink more when you go on flights. Uh, but if you know, you're up in the mountains at altitude, that's going to increase a little bit. And then obviously sweat and activity is going to increase that a little bit. So another way that we can kind of learn a little bit more about our bodies and our typical sweat rates and, and have some, uh, you know, calculated information is the next time you do your workout weigh in before, and then, you know, with dry clothes or kind of similar level of clothing weigh in after and see how much weight you lost. And for every pound lost, we need to replace that with about 20 ounces of water. So for example, again, let's say I'm 180 pounds or no, what did I say? Let's say I'm, I'm not 200 pounds, but let's say I'm 200 pounds and my goal is hundred ounces per day. And then I do, you know, a two hour ski session or snowboard session, whatever. And when I get back in, I have lost two pounds. So I need to replace 40 ounces of water. Then my daily goal is 140 ounces of water. Well, a gallon is about 130. So you can kind of see where the gallon comes in. Oh, I see. I actually like that calculation because that's way more precise. And I think having that target of half body weight for ounces per day, isn't just like what you need baseline. It's like what you need on top of like the amount of like energy that you're exerting um, yeah. to through sweat and through that. So that's yeah. really helpful as, as a measurable um, yeah. does, you know, you have these, all these things like liquid IV and element that are like or like uh, hydration multipliers. Like, is that more marketing or like, what does that what role does that have in terms of hydration? Yeah, some of it is definitely marketing. I actually, I was in the store the other day and the checkout had a hydration gum and I was like, ooh, let's see what bullshit this is. And I looked at the back and it had five milligrams, or yeah, five milligrams of sodium. That's nothing. That's doing nothing for you. A Gatorade would have at least 150, if not more. So um, sodium absolutely is important for your hydration. And the tricky part here is, you know, there's no really simple way to measure this and people's sweat sodium content is so different across the board. So what I can do is, is kind of tell you some signs to look out for if you need to add sodium. So if you get inside and you have like white marks on your eyebrows or your skin feels kind of like sandpaper or you have a white stain kind of a, a circle white stain around your pit stain that's all salt so that's all a really good indication that something like a liquid iv would be great for you to add i would say that most people if we're doing a full day on the mountain will need some form of salt replacement so Check, you know, liquid IV is a good one. Gatorade obviously is reign supreme. All the research is, um, you know, supportive of the, the formula that Gatorade has, obviously Powerade. You just want to make sure that we are getting somewhere between 
you know, usually around 300 milligrams of salt. You'll see some that are like a thousand milligrams. So just beware if it's super high, but you know, we always hear that coconut water is a really great hydration tool. Well, coconut water is really high in potassium, which yeah, that's, is something that you lose in your sweat, but it's really low in salt. And so it's not doing anything for us to replace what we actually need it to replace. So interesting. So if you bought coconut water and then you just put like table salt in it and kind of mix it up, would that be a way to kind of replace that and actually be able to replace some of that sodium that you'd lose? Sure. Yeah. Usually like a, a pinch of salt is like 300 milligrams. Like it's not okay, that much. Perfect. So yeah. Um, yeah. And then I would say kind of the other tool you can do is, is think about how often are you going to the restroom, right? So if you are peeing more than like seven or eight times a day, that's a really good indication that we're not retaining our water intake. It's just going straight through you like a pipe. So it's probably a good idea to add some salt to your, not adding straight salt to your water, but like having some sort of electrolyte beverage somewhere in that day. So we can kind of help absorb that water a little bit more. Gotcha. All right. Well, last question here. And this one is kind of like a money saving question. I know a lot of the foods, especially if you have to change your diet, maybe like during that time when you're being very intentional with recovery, um, a lot of those foods can be expensive. And um, like if you're buying organic, if you believe that that helps you even more with your recovery, that can be even more expensive. Do you have any like tips and tricks to really one hit your nutritional goals while having like the best bang for your buck when you're going to the grocery yeah. store? Yeah. And you already kind of alluded to a really important thing here is, is know what you're willing to splurge on. So if you believe in organic, um, just know that that's going to be more expensive and maybe you want to find some other, you know, different ways to, to save your money. Like I really believe in, um, higher quality beef. I'm always going to buy at least 90, 10 instead of 80, 20. That's something that I'm willing to spend a little bit more money on. Um, but ways to save money. So cheap, you know, grains are always cheap. And especially if you can buy in bulk, right? We're not typically worried about grains. Cheap proteins are going to be things like rotisserie chicken, canned chicken, canned tuna, uh, beans and legumes are a source of protein that you can buy in bulk that are really, really cheap. Um, let's see. Uh, what else can I say? Like sometimes deli meat, you know, keep an eye out for for the coupons, usually there's coupons that come around certain types of deli meats at certain stores. Um, and then in general, don't be scared of the frozen aisle and don't be scared of, of canned things. Uh, and yeah, just buy, buy in bulk whenever possible. And, you know, that doesn't mean you can't kind of portion it out and, and freeze what you're not going to use right away. Um, but bulk is always going to be cheaper. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Emily. I really appreciate you sharing a bunch of your knowledge. Um, now, I know you have this interesting challenge coming up in January, and I want to give you a chance to share that with the listeners and see if that is something that the listeners would benefit from signing up for. But yeah, um, go ahead and talk about that. Yeah, thanks so much, Greg. I'm I'm really, really excited about it. And, you know, I know I just spit a lot of, of facts and numbers and calculations your way, but truly this was just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to optimizing your rehab nutrition. So uh, starting January 3rd, I'm going to run a free uh, new year, new knee challenge. We're going to cover a lot of, of what we covered here, but make it much more tailored to you. So 
you're going to walk away knowing how much you need, what that looks like on your plate without having to uh, track it in my fitness ballot or kind of like weigh it out, kind of, you know, learn that, that plate method that we alluded to a little bit earlier, learn how to include all your favorite foods, um, and, and walk away with some, some meal ideas. And again, just making this feel less overwhelming and making things feel really easy. So I'm really excited about that. Any injury is welcome. I know it's called new year, new knee. It's definitely geared towards ACL. Uh, but I, you know, any, anybody is welcome. So I will, I will drop that link for Greg. And then, you know, you might be thinking, perfect, awesome, I'll join. And I really want to talk about some of the emotional stuff that you brought up today. Or I'm just like super gung-ho and I want my plan and I want it now. So I'm going to invite you to send me a DM and message me the word snow. And we can chat about what the best option is for you. And I will give you $50 off if you do that before Christmas. That's amazing, Emily. Thank you so much for one, coming on, sharing your knowledge, also opening up this challenge that's going to be free. And then best of all, like giving a promotion to be able to talk to you and get kind of an individualized plan. That's like something that's huge. And you didn't have to do that, but I really appreciate you doing that for all the listeners on the show. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, Emily. And for all of you that are listening, I'll go ahead and link all of those links in the show notes. So if you um, didn't catch those when you're here, you can just go ahead and click that below. All right, Emily. I'll see you hopefully on the slope sometime. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Legacy Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please share this podcast with your ski community and follow it so you don't miss another episode. Also, if you have a cool story and would like to be featured on the podcast, please reach out to the team. Lastly, if you're interested in working with me, you can book a strategy call at www.meettheskipt.com where I'll help you figure out the next best steps to keep you moving towards your journey of a lifetime of skiing.